I think we're good cool. to go. Man, I read this comic like weeks ago, so I hope I remember enough details about it that I don't sound like a freaking retard in my uh, in my off the cuff synopsis. Do you really uh, do you really want a response to that, Scott? <laughs> I know, I know. Well, I sound more like a retard because I don't remember things and I write it down, and then it just sounds like I'm reading, which I hate. <laughs> All right. Well, are we ready to get into this? I am ready and excited. I Thank think. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Thank you guys for asking me to be on. Dude. <laughs> I, know, I know, I know, but still, you know, it's just, you know, I yeah, wasn't I'll even thinking up, about uh, it, and it was just like, wow, that sounds like a lot of fun. So I'm going to uh, back off a little because uh, this is your show, so I thank you for letting me uh, keep your seat warm sometimes. <laughs> I don't. I don't look at it like that at all, sir, but it's, it's, it's nice to be back doing Back to the Bins because I really miss doing it. I like this show. This show's a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah, and that, that's the thing is, it's it's probably the mo- the most laid back and fun show mm-hmm. that I do because there's you know I wrote a synopsis, but that's because I suck at off the cuff. Um, but still, it, but mostly it's just like, hey, let's talk about some comics, yeah. So, <laughs> I think. If, if it's not putting you on the spot too much, I think you should bring the show back in because we haven't had some Michael Bailey on this show in a while, and I think the listeners are, are going to be very excited that you're no. back. And uh, i got to say, we haven't had that much Michael Bailey uh, on my uh, iPod queue uh, <laughs> for a while, which I know it's real selfish of me to, with your free time to expect you to record more, <laughs> but... Uh, but I do enjoy getting, you know, the occasional show. I'm looking for reviews. I'm not getting nothing, buddy. Uh, you'll be getting views soon. In fact, next weekend, Andy Leyland and I are sitting down uh, oh, for cool. reviews. And uh, Scott and I have got to get together with him to talk about the Hulk TV series. And I'm excited about that one. But at the same rate, I'm really nervous because there's no way I've got time <laughs> to bone up on the, t- on the Hulk TV show but between then and now. So I, I want to do it, but I'm going to sound like an idiot because I, I'm going to be the guy with like just the vaguest of like childhood memories of watching the show. I really won't have specifics to bring to the table beyond, you know, beyond the pilot, which the pilot I've seen so many times I've practically got it memorized. But beyond the pilot, I'm really sketchy on the rest of that show. You know what I mean? It, it's just it's one of those things I remember watching, but I couldn't really give you specifics, you know? So I mean, if if that's good enough to get me in, then I'm I'm happy to come along. But if you guys are looking for an expert opinion on the show, it ain't me. <laughs> I, I I think we just wanted to get three guys together that like the show to talk about it. So <laughs> the only other one I I think I've seen near as much as the pilot that I feel somewhat you know informed, and I say that in air air quotes informed, is the um the Return of the Hulk with Thor. Because I videotaped that when it when it was new, and I watched it like a zillion times. So that and one, you, I, yeah. And, and you can Thor's find now. the opening to that on YouTube, by the way. The the whole NBC Sunday Night at the Movies intro and everything. Oh, wow. So I get a kick out of that one because uh, the guy who played Thor is now the kind of the goofy father on uh, the on show Good, Good Luck, Luck Charlie. Charlie. My daughter yes. works. Mm. My daughter watches that. So I see him, and I'm thinking, my God. Thor's losing his hair. (laughs) 
Yeah, Ra- Rachel watches that show. My wife does. And uh, I remember when it first came on, I'm like, oh, good. He's still working. Because he's been working consistently in television since that movie. Yeah, uh, he's been on him, he was... He was on Mad About You a lot. Mm-hmm. And he, he was had, like, on just little the, background parts, you know. He was on the Hughleys, and that was a that was a several season show. He was on this show with Jenna Elfman uh, uh, before Darwin and Greg. Greg. Before that, there was oh. a they were like uh, it was like a seaside restaurant type thing, a little small fishing town, uh, really dumb show, but. I, was I like, didn't hey, even know Jenna was... Elfman existed before Dharma and Greg. He was also <laughs> was like a, first role. a Kryptonian in the season opener to season four of Lois and Clark. God was were those two awful episodes. So <laughs> back when he still had hair. Um, okay, what episode uh, do we have? An episode number of this, or am I just saying welcome? Oh back? shit! Um, I think eighty-eight. But give me just a second; I can tell you okay. real quick. Holy cow, I actually remembered a number for a change. Yeah, 88. This will be number 88. Okay. <clears throat> hey, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Back to the Bins. This is episode 88 of the show. My name is Michael Bailey, and right off the top, I'd like to say screw you to all the UK and Australian listeners, because at the time of this recording, you all have seen the Avengers, and I haven't yet, and you can all suck it, is what I'm saying. No, I'm just kidding. Now you got to say it like Schwarzenegger in Total Recall. Screw you! <laughs> you have what you want. Give these people their ah. <laughs> Give those people ah. <laughs> screw you! And watch, by the time this episode comes out, I would have seen Avengers, but still, I'm, I'm a little I'm a little miffed that uh, that the UK and Australia got it before we did. It does give us some advance uh, word that people are saying it's great. <laughs> With me tonight is the amazing Scott Gardner. Where? Oh, yeah. Hi. <laughs> and the spectacular Paul Spataro. Hello. Hey, I said your last name right. Good. <laughs> Thank you for that. I was going to stumble over that. <laughs> and we're here, and I am back after a long absence, which is pretty awesome. I'm, I'm very yes. excited about this. Uh, to talk good old-fashioned comic book back issues. Yes. So who's going first this week? Um, I don't know. How do we want to do this? Do we want to do a eeny, meeny, miny, or how do we want to do this? Just throw a name out. Doesn't matter to me. Hell, I'll go first. I don't care. I'm not shy. Go for it, Scott. All right. Well, what I like about this, if we can, if we can possibly keep this this format going and whatever, is uh, you know, in the past we'd always done, you know, Mike and I, one of us would bring a, a Marvel and one of us would bring a DC slash other, and uh, with with the three man team, the way I'm kind of envisioning this now is we can actually do a DC a Marvel and an other, you know, an, an indie comic, you know, a non-Marvel, non-DC. So this time around, I've got the honors for the Marvel comic. And um, I have here Marvel Fanfare. This is the original Marvel Fanfare series, number uh, 42 from February 19... Uh, is that 89 or 99? My, my eyes are going bad or something. 89, 1989. Why this one? Well, because I just picked this one up out of a uh, three-for-a-buck bin at uh, my LCS a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it just jumped out at me. It's uh, It's got a uh, black-suited Spider-Man cover on it. 
and I saw it and I was like, hey, I don't think I have this issue. And uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure I need to I need to go and, and find some sort of checklist somewhere. But I'm pretty sure that I have every appearance of the living black costume, you know, that would eventually become Venom. But I've always been a big fan of, of Spidey in the black costume. And I saw this cover, knew I didn't have it. And then I became curious, was this a living costume story or was this, you know, post all that, you know, where he just had just, you know, a regular old costume that resembled that one. So I picked it up. I figured, well, what the heck, for 30 something cents, I'll, I'll go ahead and pick it up, see if it's any good. Love the cover on it. It's uh, Spider-Man in his black and white costume. He's standing on a flagpole and the American flags, you know, blowing underneath him and everything. And his spider sense is going off. This is a really, really nice cover. Not sure who the artist is. I'm, ass- I'm assuming it's the same as the uh, interior art, which is, um, it's by, uh, it says here, script story and layouts by Carl Potts. And then the finished uh, art is by Terry Shoemaker. It looks similar enough to the interior art that I'm going to guess ha- that's who it is. But You uh, are right on that. Yeah, side. okay, cool. Yeah, it's gorgeous, gorgeous cover. So it's... Uh, you know, it's just a simple little story that I really enjoy because I think that this is quintessential Peter Parker. And the story starts off, he goes to the Bugle to uh, to collect a paycheck for some gig that he had just done, some photo thing that he had done. And the woman meets him there, this Ms. Cushing, who I'm not sure who she's supposed to be. She's, she's almost feeling like an editorial kind of role in the story. And she clues him in that Maggie Thatcher is... Uh, on a surprise visit to New York and does Peter want the assignment to, uh, you know, go snap some news pictures says that he does. But the trick is that he has a very short time. He's only got like 45 minutes to get there to get the story. If he wants the assignment, which is a really well paying gig and Peter's behind on his rent, of course. And you know, he's always got money problems. This would kind of solve his money problems if he can get the gig, but he's got no money to get to the airport on time. So Cushing cuts him a check. By this point, you know, Peter's really running late. So he has to run to the bank to cash the check. Gets all the way to the bank, and there's a problem with his check. It needs a manager's signature because he doesn't have a bank account there. So he goes, he gets the signature. There's this whole giant rigmarole that Peter has to go through to get his money. Finally gets his money, and he realizes that the teller gave him an extra $100 in the cash. And so then Peter gets into this giant dilemma, what to do with that money. He could really use that money. You know, he's constantly strapped for cash. Again, he's behind on his rent. However, you know, this poor teller will probably lose her job if he keeps that money. So it's definitely on his mind. Doesn't know what to do. And by the time he makes a decision on on what to do, the bank's now closed. So now he's stuck. He's going to have to come back tomorrow. He changes to Spider-Man to uh, to get to the uh, to the assignment and everything, and <laughs> there's a great moment where, for some reason, his costume had a had a safety pin in the back of it, and when he changes, the safety pin comes out of the back of his pants, <laughs> and uh, so the next day he goes to the bank to return the the uh, cash. And he finds out that the teller has been fired for what happened. And he feels really, really bad. And he confronts the bank manager. The bank manager is a complete dick about the situation. And Peter somehow gets access to the personnel files. And he finds out what this woman's address is. 
and he changes to Spider-Man and he goes there and I'm not sure exactly what his intention is, but as Spider-Man, he kind of eavesdrop outside the window and he learns that this poor woman is a single mother of two and he comes right at the time when her landlord is basically throwing her out saying, you know, you owe um, three months back rent and if he doesn't get it like immediately, she's out. He doesn't care about her hard luck story, you know, that she lost her job, that she's all by herself, that she's got these two small kids. He wants his money or she can, you know, hit the street. And Spider-Man feels really, really bad. So he goes to an ATM, withdraws every amount of money that he's got. And he's about a hundred bucks shy, but he's hoping that if he goes and gives this money to this woman, it will be enough to to stave off, you know, the the landlord putting her out in the street. And just as the landlord returns to the woman's apartment, Spider-Man has left this stack of cash by the door and she finds it. And as she's standing there holding it, as this guy comes to the door, he snatches up the money. But then he's a, he's a dick about it. He says, you know, you're still $100 short. So he's giving her a sort of a break, but not really. Spider-Man, in the meantime, again, I'm not quite sure why, but he spies on the bank manager and ends up getting these racy photos of him with, I don't know, a mistress or hooker or something. And so essentially blackmails this guy into giving the, uh, the, the fired teller her job back, or he's going to make public, you know, this information, these photos and everything of what the guy's been up to. So all's well that ends well, except at the end of the thing, you know, He's broke again. He's used up every bit of money that he had to get this woman out of this situation and everything. He's done the right thing, but once again, at, at personal cost to him. And all he's left with at the end of the story is at some point during this adventure, he had his camera going and he actually got a picture of himself dangling upside down on a web as Spider-Man with his ass hanging out because he had a giant rip in the back of his costume. And he has to debate whether it's worth the humiliation or not to sell those pictures to the bugle. <laughs> and at the end of the story, he decides it's just not worth it. And he sets fire to the photo in the, the bathroom stall at the bank. And the last panels are of the uh, emergency sprinkler system kicking on. And dousing Peter Parker. And he says, yeah, right. Score one for dignity. And that was the end of the story. And I got a real kick out of it because this is Spider-Man to me. You know, this this is the kind of thing that Spider-Man would do. You know, even though it really screws him over, now he's even deeper in debt. He, he has no idea how he's going to pay his own bills. But he helped this woman out of a situation, you know, that that he could have just walked away. You know, he could have, he could have found himself a hundred dollars richer, a hundred dollars that he really needed, but he knew that that wasn't the right thing to do, you know? And, and he, he went above and beyond to not only make it right, but to then, you know, assist this woman and, and her kids. And I, I just, I really enjoyed it. And I like the art style in it because it reminded me an awful lot of that brief era on the Spider-Man books when, um, Cynthia Martin, was the artist and there was that um that really good i am spider story and all that i always liked the art style in that because this is very uh 
very reminiscent of both uh, Cynthia Martin and um, Bill Sienkiewicz, I thought. Then there was also another little backup story. I'm not going to go into it very much, but I was I thought it was really cool. I because I, I didn't know it was in here at the time that I bought the book, but I'm a huge fan of Marvel's Dracula, and there's a backup story in here with the female Captain Marvel, and it's actually a time travel story that involves Dracula, and I thought that that was really really cool as well. And the art was pretty good. It's by a uh, Pencils by Bob Hall, who I've always liked. And then the inks are by um, Bill Sienkiewicz. And so it's a, it's a really uh, cool kind of gothy art style in this, you know, it's very appropriate to the, to the style of the story being told here because it's about, you know, voodoo and witchcraft and time travel and vampires. And <laughs> it's a short little, you know, it's maybe eight or ten pages, but it was a fun little story. And I had no idea that, uh, that Captain Marvel had ever had a good story ever. So I thought it was actually pretty cool. <laughs> wow. Yeah, well, she was, uh, they just created her to keep the uh, trademark, didn't they? I wouldn't be surprised. I actually don't know much about her other than, uh, you know, I remember she she popped up in, a, I think it was a Spider-Man annual was her first appearance. And she was around for a while before I think she finally changed her name to like Photon or something. Mm-hmm. She's yep. still around. Photon. But I, you know, I, I mean, I don't like hate her or anything. I just, I never, I, I think my ultimate problem with her was that she was called Captain Marvel. And I just didn't think that she was worthy of the title, you know, because that to me, that's a name that, you know, has a lot of history, you know, well beyond Marvel comics, of course. But it's just, you know, if you're going to be named Captain Marvel, you better be pretty freaking awesome because that's just an awesome name. And I always thought she was honestly pretty lame, you know. I mean, I, I, I honestly, I could never really think of, of of a good Captain Marvel story, and th- this one was this one was okay. Although I, I will freely admit, it could it could have been any character. It wasn't cool <laughs> just because it was her. It was it was really cool. You know, the story around her was cool. But I mean, you could you could seriously you could plug any Avenger into this story and and come up with you know the same results. So, but it, it still it wasn't bad. It was fun. Yep. So I really liked that artwork work. in the second one. I'm sorry, say that again. I, I really liked the artwork in the second story, as as you did as well. I thought it just really caught the mood and the tone of the story with, like you said, that gothic look. Mm-hmm. I like Sienkiewicz as a, as an inker. Yeah, me too, a whole lot. And I like that they kept the uh, the look of um, Colin's Dracula, you know, from Tuma Dracula. But he yeah. does he ha, he does have a just a tiny bit of the Dracula that was in the Dracula story from uh, from X Men one fifty nine. So this this the way Dracula is depicted in this is much more of a bridge between those two Draculas because if you ever read that X Men story, the Dracula in that does not even remotely resemble the colon Dracula from Tomb of Dracula. But in this, it's it's cool because he resembles both. You know, you can you can see traces of both of the characters. What were you saying, yeah. Mike? You like the cover on this one? Yeah, it's it's unfortunately I do not have a copy of this, but I was kind of looking it up online while you were talking about it, and the cover is just awesome. I'm a big fan of the black costume. Me too. I think um, I think it was an interesting choice. I understand that it was a bit controversial at the time because mm-hmm. I really wasn't reading comics uh, as closely as I am now back in 1984, 1985. But uh, 
This is a very it's it's almost a patriotic cover because he's sitting there right on top of the yeah. American flag, so it works on a couple different levels. I would uh, I would you know perfectly qualify myself as as a fair weather Spider Man fan. Uh, you know, all all of my life growing up. But when Spider-Man hit the black costume era, there was something about that. It was it was the combination of this cool new costume that that looked sleek and mysterious, and maybe just even a little bit scary. And Ron Friends's artwork, who who Ron Friends, I had been you know I'd really become a fan of him because he was doing Star Wars just prior to, uh, you know, jumping ship on that book and going over to do Spider-Man. And it was just like that that perfect confluence of you know the right creators and the right you know the right look of the character. And I really I was a huge fan of the of the black costume Spider Man, and I would have been perfectly fine if if he'd never gone back. I, I really enjoyed that. And as great an issue as I thought three hundred was, it also left it let me down in the long run because he he did go back to the the blue and reds in that, and uh, and that was a move that you know. I wasn't real happy with. I mean, I got nothing against that costume. I just, I still maintain that the black and white one is way cooler, and it's more spidery to me. You know what I mean? Mm. And there's a beautiful cover to uh, Peter Parker Spectacular Spider-Man number one hundred one by John Byrne. Yeah, where the entire cover is in black and white, and Spider-Man's almost like the negative spaces of it. So I, I recently stumbled upon that in my collection, and I was just, I just stopped and stared at it for a little while because it was just so pretty. Yeah, well, the one, yeah, I know which one you're talking about now. At first, the one I was thinking that you were talking about is the one I think we've talked about this before, where there were dual covers on two different Spider-Man books, where he's swinging away from the building that the Beyonder turns to solid gold. And one of the covers is Spidey in the red and blue swinging one direction, and the other cover is Spider-Man in the black and white swinging away in the other direction. And those covers actually come together to form one giant picture. I would love a poster of that. And they were both by Byrne. They were really, really nice covers. But I know the one you mean as well, where it's essentially the only thing that makes a picture is the white elements of his costume. Against mm-hmm. a perfectly black cover, and that yeah, that is a great. I, I just cover. punched it up while you guys were talking about it on on my screen. I I don't remember ever seeing this one before, and it's a great cover. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it's it he's the black and white, but then they also have like black and white buildings behind him. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I forgot. And about and that. it's 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 amazing even the way he was able to balance it so that you can make out exactly what you're looking at. It it's an incredible cover. Yeah, I, I, I really, really enjoyed that cover. I think that's one of the reasons why I, I really enjoyed the um, the tail end of Amazing Spider-Man before the, uh, I don't know, whatever they're calling it now, the reboot or whatever. I, I like that when he went, you know, it, it was a shameless tie-in with the Spider-Man 3 movie, but I still liked it, you know, the whole uh, back in black storyline and that just because he went back to that costume again you know i'm always a sucker for whenever he picks that costume back up in, in all honesty the 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 amazing spider-man issues were very good they were very late but it was uh it had this great fight between the kingpin yes. and spider-man but uh my favorites were the friendly neighborhood spider-man issues mainly because they were written by peter david right but even that had a 
how do I want to say this encounter between J. Jonah Jameson and, and Peter, mm-hmm. that was just freaking amazing. It was the mm-hmm. last issue of the series before brand new day. So very, very cool. Very, just, it, it's kind of funny though, when, uh, they started the back in black for the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, uh, Todd Nyack. I think that's how you pronounce his name, uh-huh. uh, who did artwork for young justice and a bunch of other things. Drew the black costume and uh, Zachary jo- uh, Zach from the Spider-Man Crawl Space was complaining that it looked more like an ant than a spider. Uh, the symbol on the costume, and mm-hmm. it actually led to them changing it in the book. Oh wow! So little little fandom uh, in fr- uh, saying something and them actually listening for once. So. It, it does though. It does. It does look more ant-like than spider-like. I, I remember thinking that as a kid, actually. Yeah, that if if it weren't for the for the very like daddy long legs looking legs on the spider, it would totally look like an ant. Oh, that was a conversation sucks. killer. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to step on anybody. So, <laughs> so who's going next? Uh, if you're good with it, I'll go. Sure. Okay. Go ahead, Paul. Take it away. All right. Uh- I picked Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, number 133. <laughs> oh, I love Jimmy Olsen. <laughs> and uh, the reason I actually picked this one was almost in, in honor of you, Scott, because you and I have had a couple of debates about the merit or lack thereof of Jack Kirby. Oh, no. So th- this is his, Jack Kirby's first DC issue when he went over there. Is this the so one with he, Don Rickles? No, this is before Don Rickles. Oh, this is a great issue. A hockey puck. Don Rickles is probably about five issues later, I'd yeah. say. <laughs> Goody but, Rickles. Uh, <laughs> what was it? Goody Rickles. Yeah, that's right. But uh, I, I I, had never read this one, so I pulled it out, and uh, and I decided to make it my issue. So uh, it, cover price is 15 cents. It's from October of 1970. Uh, and the title is Jimmy Olsen, Superman's Pal, Brings Back the Newsboy Legion. Uh, The cover shows Superman being run down by a uh, cyclist who's saying, Jimmy Olsen's our leader. He gives the orders. And Jimmy is saying, gun him down. And then down at the bottom it says, uh, introducing the Newsboy Legion. The cover's by Kirby along with Vince Coletta, everyone's friend Vince Coletta. The story's written by, uh, by Kirby. It's penciled by Kirby and Al Plastino. It's inked by Vince Coletta. And the letterer is John Costanza. Story opens up with Jimmy entering a garage where he finds the new Newsboy Legion, who are proclaiming to ha- that they have a miracle car, which they call the Whizwagon. We open to a double-page spread showing the car, which looks like a souped-up fantastic car. Jimmy indicates that he was sent by his new boss, Morgan Edge. The Newsboy Legion introduce themselves, and they're all sons of former Newsboy Legion members from, I guess, the 1940s, uh, with one new addition, Flipper Dipper who's a, a kid who walks around wearing scuba gear in the middle of the city. <laughs> and uh, they indicate that they're headed for the wild area, wherever that is. Then we cut over to Morgan Edge talking to Clark Kent, telling him how he sent Jimmy to the wild area. Clark says that uh, he's concerned, and Morgan, who uses a cigarette holder, so we know he's evil, uh, he indicates that he's seen to Jimmy's safety with the car, the fantastic car-looking thing. Edge sent Jimmy because the Harrys, 
the people who inhabit the wild area don't trust anyone over 25. Clark leaves, and Edge thinks Kent is a friend of Superman, and, and he's going to blow the whole plan. He calls the Intergang and lets them know that they may proceed. We, we cut to Clark, who is planning to catch up with Jimmy, and a cab comes straight at him. We cut to the crowd, and you hear the sound of the car impacting, and you see their concerned looks, and then you see them register surprise that Clark is still alive and the car speeds off. Now, how he got away with explaining that he wasn't Superman there, I don't know. We cut to the whiz wagon high in the sky, and then it goes into the water to get to the wild area. Their landing is being observed by some bikers wearing iron masks. One is named Voodoo, and the other one is named, very cleverly, Iron Mask. They race <laughs> towards the group, indicating that death is fast, loud, and final. They shoot some type of blast at the arriving party, who feel that as if they've landed in Vietnam, which I guess is uh, either appropriate or cavalier, considering this took place at the time of the Vietnam War. They can't back off because of trees, and they become tracked, trapped excuse me, by a magnetic unit. They decide they'll have to fight it out and exit the car. We cut to the masked villains who wonder if the newcomers will attempt to flank them. And the response is an incredulous, yeah, if they send a frogman up the stream behind us. Ironically, they hadn't counted, counted on uh, Flipper Dipper being there, <laughs> who sneaks up behind them just as they're saying it. As he attacks, the rest of the group rush the two masked men. And, a short, and, and after a short fight, they knock him out. They're approached by the rest of the group who call themselves the Outsiders, and they advise, they, they advise Jimmy that since he's zonked their leader, according to their code, he's now their leader. So it was pretty easy to take over the group, I guess. We cut to Clark's apartment where he's on the phone with Morgan Edge. He indicates that he had a close call and asks for the rest of the day off. He changes into Superman, thinking that he has a strange feeling that Edge knew about the accident before it happened. And he heads off to meet up with Jimmy. He follows Jimmy by using his heat vision to help him track the after image of the heat rays, heat, heat waves left by the car, which is a power I didn't know that Superman actually had. They bring him, the, the heat waves bring him to the wild area where he probes with his x-ray vision and sees mechanical mechanisms deep in the rock. He goes through an underground passage and meets up with a strangely dressed fellow who tells him, welcome to the wild area, brother. You're now free to do your own thing. <laughs> that fellow then rudely asks Superman to leave, indicating that he wants to meet, uh, meditate. Superman comes across a hunting party who shoot him point-blank in the chest and then realize that he's not just someone in a Superman costume. So I guess they were going to kill him if he wasn't Superman. <laughs> the attackers hear engines and flee, saying that it's the Outsiders. The Outsiders burst onto their bikes, taking orders from Jimmy. They start to circle Superman. But Jimmy says he'll deal with him. Superman warns Jimmy that he's involved in a dangerous game, but Jimmy says he's not backing out. One of the outsiders shoots a gun at Superman that emits some sort of kryptonite and stuns him. Jimmy says that Superman has a lot to learn about the place and about Jimmy. We cut to Morgan Edge, again with a cigarette holder, pondering how Kent survived the intergang's attempt and wondering if Superman could have somehow saved him. He calls Clark's apartment to make sure that he's minding his own business, and is told that Clark feels fine, but wants to stay home until he's fully rested. With Edge satisfied, we cut to Clark's apartment, where we're told there's a special recorder hooked up to the phone, which is programmed to respond to any question. We cut back to the wild area. Superman is waking up in a room with the Newsboy Legion, and they welcome, to the ha they welcome him to the habitat. We then have a full-page spread of the habitat, which is apparently a giant treehouse complex with smokestacks and roads. 
Jimmy and the outsiders arrive, and Jimmy apologizes, but says he can't give up. He shows Superman a map, which indicates that they need to find the Mountain of Judgment. One of the outsiders, a guy named Yango, says the mountain is not a place, it's more like a thing. You go to meet it and die. The Newsboy Legion says that they're with Jimmy, and they're not going to cop out. Superman says that it's his duty to do everything he can to stop them. There's a big explosion, and Yango says that the mountain is beginning to move, and it's many miles away. It must be big to do this. Big. Jimmy looks out a window and sees only a strange light in the distance. He tells the outsiders to rev up their vehicles and tell Superman not to stop them. We close out the story with the promise that in the next issue, we're going to meet the terrifying mountain of judgment. And that's how it ends. <laughs> so it's definitely a story that's just very, very dense again. Yeah. And all sorts <laughs> of things going on. Yeah. I that... like this story. You do? Oh, I what love Jack Kirby's Jimmy Olsen issues. The ones that I've read. I absolutely love them. They're, they're just fantastic. They are. It's, it's, to me, it's everything that's great and everything that's bad about Kirby. When, yeah, when that's, you, that's, that's a fair assessment. Because, you know, like you, you take his imagination, it's just phenomenal. He came up with so many concepts, so many ideas, and he just jammed them in. And so, sometimes there was no rhyme or reason to how he was jamming them together. And I think that's where Stan Lee's genius kind of worked with him well, because he would just reel him in a little bit and, and have him present these ideas in just a slightly more spread out fashion Powerful. so that you could you could actually get a feel for what was going on in this if you're not really paying attention you can miss a ton of stuff yeah but this is actually the very first in the uh, fourth world books yes uh that was published first appearance of intergang first appearance of morgan edge or the clone of morgan edge i guess i should say Mm. Well, that's that's was that a, that was a retcon though, right? Down the road, yes. Yeah, that was after Kirby had left, and uh, Jerry Ordway used this cover, uh, did an homage for it on Superman number thirty-seven in nineteen eighty-nine, where you have Jimmy and the Newsboy Legion gunning Superman down, hitting Superman with the whiz wagon, and at the bottom it says featuring the Newsboy Legion and the Guardians. So it's a uh, it's very. It's one of the reasons why I first picked up this issue is because it was uh, it reminded me of the book that it was paying homage to. So if that makes so, say sense. Superman's ex pal Jimmy Olsen yep. on the cover. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yes, it does. Yeah. I, I had a couple other notes on this thing. Uh, this this was I guess the first issue where Kirby started what what ended up becoming his trademark was the after the initial splash page you'd always open to a double page spread. You know, it, it would be a, basically you'd have your splash page and then you'd have a two-page splash page, which I guess was probably easier for him because he was drawing so many books a month because, uh, you know, he wouldn't have to draw six panels. He would draw one giant panel on that second page. Uh, but if you look at it, that's almost every issue of Kirby's run after this, uh, you know, as long as he was the writer, through Commandy, through the New Gods issues, uh, even when he came back to Marvel when he started doing Captain America and Black Panther. It basically became his trademark, which I think is interesting. Uh, I, I like the Kirby layouts, but I don't like the inking, which you could probably do a whole episode on Vince Coletta and the stories about him. There's you know, all, all the talk about him basically erasing backgrounds because it just took too long to ink them. Yeah. 
yeah, you know, as part of the project that uh, that we've got coming up for next back to the bins, I was reading through some old comics today, and uh, there was an issue. I think it was an FF issue um, by George Perez of all people, who you talk about throws detail into his pencils and into his backgrounds and everything. But the inker was Vinnie Coletta, and holy cow, you talk about two art styles that don't mesh well at all that that mm. was the very definition of it i think you could definitely hold that one up as like exhibit a for look this is what vinnie coletta does to a great penciler right here and and the, i mean the, the stories about him were that he apparently had no hesitation at all about throwing his weight around and being a bully to younger people also mm-hmm. so i don't know if that's true or not and i don't uh i can't say it as fact but certainly the stories that say that so as I read especially, through this thing, I'm sorry, what? Especially since you got rumors that he may have known some people who know some people. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? somebody over to put a hit on me? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, what happened well, to Paul? That, <laughs> that kind of plays into my next uh, note here. Was I was looking at the uh, dialogue, and after the, some of the conversations we've had about uh, me and Dan DiDio and other things, I'm a little uh, offended <laughs> by some of his Brooklynese in these uh, books. Uh, he, <laughs> He's got a, one of the guys says, foist rate. Uh, when, they, when, they, uh, when they shoot him with the gun, the guy says, uh, there was green K in it. That's what conked you, soupy. Uh, <laughs> but I, I can hear Dan DiDio say, it's got green K in it, soupy. <laughs> and so he goes from that. He goes from like 1940s type Brooklynese talk. And then he goes to, I guess, the... Uh, at that point, Kirby was probably, say, 50, 60 years old, somewhere in that range. His version of what a teenager would talk about, <laughs> uh, or the way a teenager would talk, rather. It says, cool, baby, the whiz wagon grabs sky like a crazy eagle. <laughs> we dig only our own vigilante group, so it's like you're doomed. <laughs> I just, his dialogue was not one of his strengths. Again, that sounds that's, just that's like weird. my kids when they talk. <laughs> That's one of the biggest kicks I ever got of him, and I can't even credit Stan Lee as doing better than Kirby because uh, I always found it amusing when you'd have like a 17-year-old kid turning around to some somebody else and calling him boy chick. Uh, <laughs> you know, what 17-year-old kid have you ever seen use that word? This is very true. Um, do I count? <laughs> <laughs> but I was in a production of Fiddler on the Roof, so it... it when I was 17, so it, it made sense at the time. <laughs> All right, I, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a pass on that one, but uh, <laughs> I don't think your average 17-year-old No, no. That. And then, uh, and I, I think you'd, you'd appreciate this, Scott. On I, When I read it through on page 19, I don't know if you have it in front of you, there was a close-up of Superman's face, and I thought it looked exactly as if Wayne Boring had drawn it. And I know you're a big oh, boring. Oh no! Fan. Yeah, I am. Yeah, no, I have to look that up. No, I've actually I've never read this uh, this issue, which is why one of the reasons I'm keeping quiet on this. Um, see, I you know the the funny thing is the hard thing to admit about this is I, I have a long-standing prejudice against this this era of you know both Superman and Jimmy Olsen and the whole Fourth World thing and all that, but. In all fairness, I've never read it either. You know, not completely. I've read chapters of it because I know I used to have the uh, the the Don Rickles issue. 
I don't know what the hell ever happened to it because I was just looking to see if it was still in my database, and it's not. So at some point, I must have gotten rid of it, I guess. So I know I've read bits and pieces of that whole saga. I just, you know, I, I think it's, for me personally, to me, it's just, it's one of those weird little pieces of Superman lore that I just wish had stayed, you know, in the Silver Age. You know what I mean? Because that mm. was one of the, as much as I love, you know, the from crisis to crisis era of Superman, that's one of the corners of it that I never liked. I never liked the the revivication of, of you know, the, the fourth world elements beyond Darkseid. I always liked the Darks. I liked making Darkseid a, a Superman villain. And then that owes to my love of Superman, the animated series. But when they did it on that show, they brought in... Um, you know, Darkseid and, and Mannheim and Orion and all that, but they left some of the, what I consider to be the goofier elements behind. They didn't bring in the Habitat and Supertown and, you know, the, the uh, what were they, the, was it the Furries or Furies or? Furies. You know, the, the Forever. Furies. The, well, no, not the, not them. I like the female, but it was the, like the Forever People and, mm-hmm. um, um, double x and i just, i never liked i i don't i can't really tell you what it is it just to me that's where you're and i realize that superman has science fiction roots but that's where it was going a little bit too far afield for me you know what i mean and and i think you've said it before mike that superman should be the most fantastic thing in his world uh-huh. and when he's not i think it dilutes his character so when you suddenly have superman living in a city where just under the street you've got this fantastic realm of DNA aliens and clones and and weird, you know, just all this weird shit going on. Somehow to me, for one, it destroys the, the realism of the story because I like a grounded Superman. You know, I like a Superman that, that yeah, he flies and he wears his underpants on the outside, but at the end of the day, he feels like a, like a real character like a real person in this I, I like that presentation of superman not that one that lives in a really fantastic world because the issues of of superman that i always hated the most were ones where like i remember there was an issue i'm pretty sure it was superman man of steel where there was like this giant whale creature on the cover attacking cruiser a i hate shit like that because it just <laughs> You're never going to see a Superman movie where there's a giant, you know, whale creature attacking a building. You know what I mean? Because it, it's it's too far out there, you know? And, and so it, it's just that's the that's the elements of, of Superman lore that just appeal to me the absolute least is that yeah. really crazy ass Kirby stuff like that. I don't mind when they get far out stuff like that, but I think you always have to bring it back. You know, you always have to have that human element in there as well. Because right. if it's just crazy, then I don't like it. But if if you have the crazy stuff balanced with the human stuff, and that's not an easy task by any stretch. Right. I think that's when you have your best Superman stories. I mean, I, I think one of my favorite moments, and I think you guys have talked about this too, uh, is from the Justice League cartoon when they had the Christmas episode. Right. And they go back to, to Smallville, and they're sitting there with Mon Pa Kent. And I think... Uh, I don't even remember what it is, but Pa starts to either light the fire or get the marshmallows ready. And Clark is like, Pa, that's my job. And right. he just, just seemed like such a regular guy. And that's the real 
you know, that's the real guy. Superman isn't the real guy. That's the real guy. Right. And I love when they portray him that way. But then you have him doing these fantastic things. And it, it's even though he's the most fantastic character, he's still your point of view character because, you know, deep down inside, he's like the same as us. Right. I, I, you know, I, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Mike. Well, I, I think it is kind of ironic that you're absolutely right. I, I like a grounded Superman as well, um, which is why when they did the whole Y2K storyline, I was just very frustrated for several years because, you know, there's flying cars in Metropolis. Yeah. And it, it's not the 30th century, so, you know, WTF. But uh, I guess it's just because it was so part of that era that I loved and grew up with with Superman that I always kind of dug, uh, except when they went overboard with it at times. Uh, I liked the Kirby elements, oddly enough. I loved the Guardian and the DN double X and all that, which I guess, you know, when you say, when, when you pointed that out, that that's the, the Superman that I like is a more grounded Superman, I thought, well, am I a hypocrite now? Because. No, not at all. Because I like that. But uh, more to the point, also, Scott, uh, and this is just me remembering past conversations we've had about Superman, you were always very frustrated when they focused on characters other than Superman. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, some of that stuff I said, I I said kind of tongue in cheek because of course you have to have other characters in the book. If it was just Superman as Superman 24 seven, then yeah, there's only so much you can do with that. You have to have other characters. He has to have a supporting um, you know, supporting characters and supporting um, staff, you know, in, in the books and everything. It's just, you know, I, I don't know where that line is. I don't know where that line is between having interesting secondary characters and having them in it too much. And the same thing goes with, like, the, the Kirby Fourth World stuff. I, I don't know where that line is because, you know, you're talking about realism in the same world where you have, you know, dead acrobats that can possess people and, you know, a millionaire vigilante and, you know, all this crazy, crazy shit that happens in this world that they live in. So what is what is crazier about, you know, a, 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 you know, the black racer or, um, you know, the big hairy dude from the forever people? You know, what? why are they any crazier? But somehow they just are to me. Somehow... You know, I, I can take, you know, the, the, the you know, quote unquote mainstream people of the of the DCU just fine. But you get off in some of these corners where you find characters like Double X and it's just somehow it's a bridge too far. I can't really explain why it just there's something about those characters that I could just never get into them. I, I didn't like them in Superman's world. I, I, don't, I really don't know why I, I can't quite put my finger on it. But, you know, I, there were elements that I definitely liked. I, I, you know, Darkseid comes right out of this era. And, and I, I think he's a great character. And I really like him as a, as a foil for Superman. I, so. I got to expand on that a little bit, though. I mean, even, even the whole concept of the new gods. Uh, you know, I mean, there's so much, so much rich storytelling to be had there. Uh, and, and, you know, you've seen so many great people burn... Walt Simonson and a lot of other people just try and mine that because there's just so much there that Kirby only, you know, he introduced it, he threw it up against the wall to see what would stick, and then he just moved on to other things. I mean, he didn't really even dig anywhere near as deep as he could have into a lot of that. Right. And, uh, 
and I, I, I don't think it's hypocritical at all, Mike, to uh, to like that and like the grounded Superman, because I don't think you necessarily need a grounded Superman story to have a grounded Superman. You know, he's still the same guy, and that's to me that's the whole key is you have to write him true to the character. Right. And sometimes I think that did escape Kirby a little bit. Like he'd almost have this, uh, you know, a little bit, a little bit of a bland Superman. You know, you wouldn't have the personality, and and I, that's one of the things in Superman stories that does irritate me a little bit is when they he, they present him as not having a personality. Uh, you know, they present him as so selfless that he doesn't have things that he even likes or dislikes. You know, his his whole existence is just based on you know being the Boy Scout. Uh, you know, and and I just like when they dig into the Superman character a little bit more. He's always the guy who's going to make the right decision if he can, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have a personality. What what little you know exposure I've had to that era, you know, the the Kirby era, is uh, I always got the impression that he was doing Superman as a god, you know, at, at, you know, because there's even the thing with him going to. Supertown to be amongst his people, you know, people that were on a, a level of him. So that to me is, it, it's removing him from that interpretation that I like of the character as, yes, he's godlike, but he's also got that golly gee shucks, you know, Midwestern farm boy, uh, you know, just personality to him. That that's the Superman that I really like. You know, well, even even in this story though, they, <laughs> for, you know, to present him as a god, they took him out awful easy, and they made him, you know, he really did make him into the supporting character in this book. Jimmy Olsen's the main character, <laughs> you know, which is rightfully so. I mean, it is a series called Jimmy Olsen, uh, but they, you know, he did do that in in the story itself. He didn't have him as this, you know, omnipotent guy who comes out and you know just comes and rescues. Uh, Jimmy, you know, when he's when when Jimmy digs too deep and gets himself into trouble, you know, they they did make Jimmy the main guy. <laughs> still, that's it. Still kills me just to think that Jimmy Olsen had his his own book for what did that book run like twenty years 100, or something? Hundred and seventy something. Hundred sixty three issues. Then it turns into Superman Family, right? Yeah. He continued to have a, a feature in there. And yeah, well, you know, to be fair, in the 50s, when the series started, I think it was like 1959, you know, they were still riding high on the Adventures Adventures of Superman Superman, television series, Yeah, where Jimmy was constantly getting into one wacky, you know, hijink after another. And it was a, it was a time period where you could, you could support a book like that i mean they, they had Lois, you know lois lane had a tryout and showcase before she got her own title so which still constantly amazes me i mean i want to be in on that production meeting <laughs> where they're like no really really we're, we're gonna we're gonna do a lois lane series well what is she gonna do um act batshit crazy most of the time how's that sound guys ah good get right on that get well, that they did eventually go guy. for uh they did eventually go for social relevance when they had her transform herself into an African-American woman. I want to see Jimmy Olsen as a black guy. I think that would be freaking hysterical. <laughs> I think it'll be about as good as the time Punisher turned black and teamed up with Luke Cage in the 90s. <laughs> I forgot about that, man. But uh, that Adventures of Superman TV series was one of my... Uh, 
you know, one of my entry drugs into comics. Yeah, was me too. When I was in elementary school, that was, you know, on in syndication every afternoon on Channel 11, and I'd yep. come home from school and sit and watch it every day. Yep, WWPIX. Sure yep. as hell was. Wasn't Batman on with that as well, eventually? Yeah. It was it was definitely on in the afternoons in syndication, but I don't know if it was on the same station. I don't know if they ran them together. I don't remember, but I was watching that in the afternoons. That's where you know most guys that do this, you know, you hear them talking. Almost universally, the entry drug was uh, the Super Friends, mm-hmm. but I was already totally hooked by the time Super Friends became big, and Adventures of Superman and Batman and the old Spider-Man cartoon were my uh, yeah. You know, that's what started me. I just think it's funny that you got three guys on the phone right now. They live in very different parts of the United States along the eastern seaboard, and yet they all have, as a common denominator in their superhero upbringing, WPIX. But but to be fair, when when we were all kids, we probably were within a two-hour, three-hour drive of each Mm -hmm. other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In Mountaintop, Pennsylvania and Allentown, Pennsylvania, the cable system we had, Service Electric, which was the very first cable system in the United States, um, had WPIX and the Fox Channel from from New York all the time. So it became very much a staple of my uh, <laughs> of my younger years. Now it may predate you, Mike, but uh, you know, I, my one of my biggest things is from PIX was uh, every Sunday morning. They would show uh, an old Abbott and Costello movie at 11 a.m. And uh, instead of being a, a you know a good church-going boy, I would just sit and watch Abbott and Costello <laughs> instead on Sundays. And every Christmas Eve, they'd have the log. Yeah, they'd have the Yule log. They still have it, but it's hard to find. <laughs> That's very sad. <laughs> they actually sell a DVD of the Yule log. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Sells pretty well, too, believe it or not. Yeah, people don't want to start the fire themselves. <laughs> well, are we ready to move on to me? Absolutely. Well, apparently I have stumped the panel this time out uh, with my choice. Um, I have a, uh, I don't have a very large independent comic book collection, but every once in a while I'll get on a kick and, and pick something out. And I uh, dug out Revenge of the Prowler number two. Now... <laughs> I think it's fair to say that all of our listening audience uh, knows who Spider-Man is and knows who Superman is. Uh, I'm willing to bet that some of them most likely don't know who the Prowler is. So before I get to my issue, I figured you all might want a little primer on the character. Uh, the only reason I know anything about this character is actually because of Superman. Did you guys ever see that Amazing Heroes issue that that was uh, that celebrated the 50th anniversary of Superman? Had a really no, weird painted cover. I think so. Well, there was a section in there where they had different artists uh, from around comics at that time do a little like thank you to Superman, basically. Mm-hmm. And one of them was this guy named the Prowler who said, the Prowler doffs his hat for no man, but for you, sir, I shall make an exception. I'm like, who the heck is the Prowler? So about three or four years ago, I found an entire run of Airboy, uh, the Eclipse series Airboy that was uh, first done by Timothy Truman and then Chuck Dixon took it over. Uh, And I'd always wanted to read it because, you know, it's Chuck Dixon. 
and I love that man's writing. And in it, they had ads for The Prowler. And I'm like, I wonder if I can find any of these issues. And Titans, which was the comic shop I was going to at that time, had both series and, and, and uh, in their back issue selection. So basically, there were two miniseries. This was a character created by Timothy Truman. Think a pulp character like The Shadow mixed with a lot of horror elements. Uh, in the first series, which was just The Prowler, were treated to two stories, one in the present and one told from the uh, one that told the origin of The Prowler from the 30s. In the present, the aged Prowler trains a kid named Scott Keita to be his protege, no matter how much it is screwing up young Scott's life. Scott and Leo fight the forces of Murder Legendary, and I think that's how you pronounce it, who is actually the villain from the 1932 Bela Lugosi film White Zombie. Mm. I don't know if any of you have ever seen that. It's a bizarre film. Uh, and like I said, the, stor the story had this real mix of pulp hero and horror to it. And the origin itself was kind of cool, and I, I like it quite a bit. Basically, Leo was a businessman investment type guy that was fired from a firm because of uh, an investment that went bad. And eventually he starts working for this mo movie studio. Meanwhile, he is feeding info on how certain businesses are trying to circumvent the unions to a childhood friend of his. And that friend ends up getting killed and then turned into a zombie, which goes back to the whole white zombie thing. Uh, at the beginning of the second series, Scott Keita, his new protege, is this complete wreck. And he wants to be—he wants to quit being the Prowler's partner, but sticks around when two of Leo's old friends show up because one of their granddaughters is mixed up in, of all things, child porn. And that's where we pick up *Revenge of the Prowler* number two. This is a March 1988 cover date. Story title was *Search and Destroy*. Timothy Truman, writer. J.K. Snyder, the third artist with Julie Michael as the colorist, Tim Harkins as the letterer, and Kat Ironwood. Is, is that how you pronounce that? Ironwood? Do you know what I'm talking about, Scott? That really bizarre, or, or Paul, that really bizarre way that it has a Y on it? Do I think know I know who you're talking about, yeah. I, I, I'm not familiar with it, sorry. This was a Four Winds production created by Truman, Snyder, and Price. We open on Leo and his friend Tom who was one of the friends I mentioned before, sitting in a car outside of a XXX bookstore. Tom wonders if Scott and Corby, the other old friend of Leo, will be all right, and Leo has faith in his partners, though he does tell Tom to put his cigarette out. Tom breaks down a little, admits that he doesn't even know why he's doing this, as he has been retired from the force after 20 years and was actually going to kill himself when Corby showed up, which pretty much disgusts Leo. Inside, Corby and Scott gain access to the back room of the bookstore, which should tell you how messed up the shit is back there, because this is the back room of an adult bookstore. <laughs> Usually the, the back room is the adult bookstore, but, you know, whatever. And find the more hardcore stuff like snuff films, kitty porn, etc. One of the magazines has Corby's granddaughter in it, and they make their way back up front. Scott knocks the clerk down and signals Leo and Tom, who quickly enter the store. They smack the clerk around a bit, and Leo even plays him audio from one of the films that the guy was selling and reveals what he knows. And apparently, even though this guy sells kitty porn, he is not into it, so it disgusts him. The trail leads them to a back, back alley brothel 
and soon Leo has purchased the services of a young boy. They get the boy to safety, of course, because, well, it's not that kind of party. And, well, they they kill everybody in this brothel except for one guy that they leave to interrogate. They, they shoot everybody dead. After getting the other kids to safety, they tie the remaining scumbag to a chair, and soon he is singing like a canary and reveals that the chain of scumbaggery leads to a legal advisor named Charles Clairedale, who represents the AFMBL, which stands for the Association for Man-Boy Love. So they're an upstanding group. As you might imagine, they pay Charles a visit, and he reveals that while most of the porn is done stateside, some of the good stuff, quote-unquote, is sent down to Mexico to be produced. Soon, Leo and Scott are at a private garage where Leo keeps his really cool toys. Then they come across a cyborg cat. Not lying, there is a cyborg cat at the end of the story. Soon, Leo's buddy Craig Mansfield, the Rack Man, appears, and it turns out that this is the guy that builds all of Leo's gear and even brought an alley cat back to life as a cyborg. Leo tells Craig that they need to get to Mexico, and Craig responds that Mexico is very nice this time of year. And uh, there is a backup story, which is actually told in the style of Sunday comic strips concerning a golden age adventure of the Prowler where he ends up fighting Nazi types because it's the 30s and fighting Nazi types is cool. Um, this is a very disturbing comic book and deals with something that I would rather not think about and I can't really imagine what it was like to do research for this sort of thing. Because it seems to be very well researched. Uh, the book came with a flexi disc. You guys remember when they used to put like little flexible records into things? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember yep. that. This w- has, was it square? Yes, it is square. And my copy still has the flexi disc in it. Um, I was trying to see if anybody had like transferred this to digital form. So I scoured YouTube and Google and found one guy actually has a YouTube video of both sides. Unfortunately, it's him putting it on his record player and playing it. So you're hearing it through the speaker, through the speaker, if that makes any sense. Because so he didn't have a, an actual conversion system for yeah, it. Yeah. He just turned the camera on and played his record player. Uh, they're very weird songs. Uh, it's a soundtrack for Revenge of the Prowler two, number two. The first song is Hey Mr. Prowler, and the second one is Hunt by Night, which is the Prowler quote-unquote TV theme. Um, like I said, genuinely disturbing story. In the first series, he was fighting zombies, and now he's fighting, fighting child pornographers. And the stuff that comes up in later issues is actually even more disturbing. But... Beyond the subject matter, I really like this series, and I like these characters. It's you know the the mix of pulp and horror that the first series had was really kind of cool, and I think separated it as an independent book. And Scott Keita, the the kid that the Prowler has basically come across, he found him in a park actually. I really feel bad for him because his life has gone to complete crap, and the the dynamic between them is a lot like what we would later see in Batman beyond with Terry McGinnis and the older Bruce Wayne, except that's a little more super heroic. We're here. It's a little more sad and pathetic. 
Uh, but the people they come across during the course of this investigation are complete and utter scumbags. And the scene where Leo pays the pimp for the kid just really, really upset me. Like, I, I picked this out kind of at random and told you guys that I was going to cover it. Because, like, oh, it's one of the Prowler books. And then I forgot what was in it. And now I feel really bad. <laughs> <laughs> But then at the end of at the end of this like really heavy story, right? There's a cyborg cat. So that makes it all worthwhile. It's just like it just, <laughs> it took me out of the story completely, because re- outside of like the more pulp elements that were in the horror elements that were in the first series, where you had, you know, basically zombies, you know, walking around. You know, just just in this one, it was very more. It was more straightforward. It was more of a crime drama. You know, you know these guys are doing investigations, so they they go to the store, which leads them to a guy, which leads them to a guy, which leads them to where they eventually have to go to, and then Cyborg Cat. It's just very <laughs> strange. Um, Timothy Truman's an interesting comic book creator. I am not overly familiar with his larger body of work. Cause I never read uh, scout. Um, I, 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 he did the first couple issues of Airboy. What I'm most familiar with him and you guys are probably too the Hawk world yeah. prestige oh, format yeah. miniseries. Um, I, I can't really recommend this story because I think it's very disturbing, but it's still a well told comic book. And the artwork is, really interesting the the artist is he doesn't have what i would call a clean style but it's not like out and out independent style either if that makes any sense because sometimes when you get to these independent books in the 80s the art is very amateurish and that's kind of cool because that's kind of the point of independent comic books as people working outside the system this guy definitely has a polished style but it still feels like an independent book. Uh, what is his name? J.K. Schneider III. And the fact that this thing has a uh, record in it is just beyond cool to me for some reason. Now, How many the, other... the record actually have, like, is it just music or are there lyrics? It's music. And there's okay. lyrics to the first one. Um, there is an ad on the back of this, by the way, that says, 10 Years of Superheroes. Eclipse Comics, and you see all the superheroes in their line, including uh, Miracle Man, who is the only one that I really rec- recognize because I'm not overly familiar with the Liberty Project and the DN Agents. I don't know if you guys read too many independent books during the 80s. Well, during the late 80s was when I was out of comics altogether, so this would fall into the time that I wasn't reading, so I, I was totally unfamiliar with it when you told us which one you had picked. I looked it up online, and the best I was able to find was a cover image for it, which the cover is actually kind of good. I like the cover. Yes, it is. Uh, so I'm, I'm, really looking at the cool I'm assuming the, inter- the interior art is similar in style? Yes, yes, it is. I'm thinking it looks like when you say, you know, mainstream but not mainstream, it looks like the art you'd find in, like, maybe Shadow of the Bat or yeah, a series like that. I'll agree with that. No, that, that that that's exact. It's it's kind of like a vertigo style almost, or right, what would become yeah. a vertigo style. Yeah, but it, but you're right. I mean, it does look professional. It's not like a, you know that amateurish, uh, you know, 
the book you expect to get for half price because it's not professionally done. <laughs> uh, this this doesn't seem to have that look to it at all. According to this, this is the second Four Winds Flexi Disc. So I got to track down what other record they were putting in their uh, in their books at the time. So Eclipse is just an interesting company to me. Just looking at the because I've looked through like back issue bins where there was a bunch of Eclipse books in there, and it seemed like they were really making a go of being a full fledged comic book company that just eventually went out of business and now all of their characters and all of the the books they did there's this huge legal like what is the word i'm looking for morass or um what is uh, i i'm trying to think of a word and i can't uh apparently todd mcfarlane bought all of the eclipse characters or the versions of eclipse characters because what eclipse would do is it would take characters like airboy that were published by the Hillman Group in the 40s that had lapsed into public domain and just do their versions of it. They did that with Airboy. They did it with The Heap. They did it with The Black Terror, which was a Bo Smith and Dan Brereton book that always looked kind of interesting. Because the concept of the book was it's an alternate universe where the Capones are the Kennedys and the Kennedys are the Capones. Yeah. So there's like this like organized crime feel to it. Uh, apparently Todd McFarlane bought all that, but people are challenging the legality of it, which is why we haven't had reprints of the Miracle Man stuff that Alan Moore and Neil Gaiman did, which is kind of a shame because I'd like to read that stuff in printed form. Uh, Marvel keeps saying they're going to print it, but they have yet to do so. Yeah, they recently said that again. And... Uh... If you can trust the Wikipedia page on Eclipse Comics, they also uh, pr- they published the Rocketeer at one time. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They was were the, the original uh, publishers, I believe. Was, no, wasn't Pacific Comics originally? Or was yeah, it was, was, maybe, yeah, yeah, maybe you're right. Yeah, maybe you're right. I, I can look that up real quick because I have uh, some of the Pacific ones. Yeah, you know, now that you say that, I think you're right. But I hate. I'm sorry that I brought the room down. Uh, <laughs> no, not at all. Nothing like child pornography to make a room happy. <laughs> well, I think in the third miniseries he ended up teaming up with Richie Rich and Hot Stuff, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, the Prowler is a really. Int- he's. He is not the friendly Batman type character. He is definitely a guy that lives in his own world, especially the older one. And there's a, there's a reference in here where, um, where he's talking to the guy in the car where he says that years ago I made a deal to extend my life, but now that deal is coming up and you get the feeling that that's why he, chose a successor to carry on his work. I'm trying to think who he reminds me of uh, in, in, in those terms, but it, it's, it's a great, I'd, I'd recommend the first series definitely because it's got a great pulp feel to it, but it's also got a great independent eighties feel to it, uh, which is what I think attracted me to it. Cause like I said, I'm not usually into the independent books, but every once in a while, I'll find one and go, ooh, this is really cool. I just find it strange that you say Batman is a fr- has a friendly feel. 
they've spent the last 20 years trying to make sure that nobody thinks Batman is friendly. Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah. At, but at the same time, while he is driven and while he can be a jackass, he still looks at his partners as family. No, you're, no, you're right there. Uh, but it seems, I mean, and I, I know very little other than what you've talked about on this, but uh, it seems like the com- the uh, comparison to the shadow might be the most accurate one. Yeah, I, I, I'd go with that. Um, he's, you know, his origin is deep in the, you know, the, the, the Great Depression and, you know, the stock market collapse, and he was this rich guy that, felt bad about turning his back on his roots because his name's like Leo Craig, but that's not his real name. His real name is this, uh, he was a, it was a Jewish man that had to change his name to be accepted in the business world. And the thirties adventures are actually kind of funny. Uh, cause the first one that was an issue two of the original series has him on the radio, like talking to this news reporter but listen, if you were listening to the show at home, it would almost sound like a radio show from the 1930s and 40s. And he's constantly referring to himself in the third person as, you know, the, the prowler does this and the prowler does that. And, it's, and the other interesting thing about that was he was saying who he's declaring war on. And it all at one point it kind of seems like he's declaring war on those that lead alternative lifestyles, which <laughs> changes the tenor of the character a little bit. That he's he's lumping those people in with you know crooks and pornographers essentially. <laughs> I guess in in the 1930s that would have been the public perception. Yeah, as, as, I mean, as... it, it, I don't, I don't take it as gay bashing on the part of Timothy Truman and the other people. I think it's just more of a statement of that's how it was in the thirties. So, which, which actually I liked because Scott and I have discussed this before. Sometimes you don't want them to candy coat what it was like back then, you know? Right. Yeah. You, you want the realism of what it was, you know, what it was like for the people living in that time period. And it may look a little weird now, but back then, it would probably have been completely normal. I want a certain amount of realism, but I also, I have to say, just you know, from hearing the story, I tend to shy away from comics, movies, books, where the subject matter is as disturbing as child pornography and that kind of thing. Just because, you know, I watch movies, read comics, and read books for entertainment. Mm-hmm. And if, if it gets too, you know, just too down and dirty... I don't find it so entertaining, even though I may, uh, you know, be educated by it. And I don't like to live life looking through rose-colored glasses, but I also, you know, I like to sleep at night. And sometimes when I expose myself to things that are just too graphic or too nasty, you know, it stays with me and it bothers me right. for a while. Yeah, I, and, and believe me, that's how I felt. Because I, I didn't know that was the subject matter going into this series. Uh, I just bought all, you know, the four issues of the first series and the three or four issues of the second series. I can't find the rest of this. It's in my, it's in the black hole that is my comic book collection right now. Um, but when I got to the second series, you know, I'm I'm a hard guy to shock, you know. You know, th- th- there's there's very little that, you know, you can do in terms of comedy and horror and stuff 
that that I'll go, wow, that that's really creepy or wow, that's really shocking. You know, I'm offended. When I got through this story with some of the things they did, because of course they didn't show anything overt because you can't do that. But again, I go back to the research that must have gone into this. And how do you do research on that? I mean, you couldn't do that today. You could not Google child porn without <laughs> Benson and Stabler kicking your door open. Yeah, go ahead. Do that. <laughs> I mean, so, so how did you... Let me I know mean, how that works out for you. I mean, the only thing I could think of is maybe they had contacts with the police department. Because usually writers will develop contacts like that to do research with. And maybe it's just like, well, you know, I'm doing this story on child pornography. What, how does the investigation go? How do the organizations work? Because they're when when they're going through the investigative side of this story... It's very much one guy leading to the next guy on the food get chain leading to the next guy on the food chain. And seeing that, you know, this Truman talked to somebody. I don't know who he talked to, but he talked to somebody about about how it works. Yeah, I think if you're it, researching this, the one thing you can't do is do an internet search just because yeah. you're running the risk of getting <laughs> to the wrong places. Yeah. But I would imagine if you talk to people in law enforcement, like you said, but mm -hmm. I, I would think there's also... Uh, probably books out there that could give yes. you some information and also you know there's probably police files that are public records that might be available for you to 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 peruse and get a little bit more information of how this stuff works and how the investigations work and all of that but, be but again probably the most dangerous the thing would be to do a google search <laughs> you just got to be very just very careful on how you uh ask the question because it's like you know, I'm doing this story and I'm doing research on what do you know about child porn? You don't open up the conversation. So, what do you know about child porn? <laughs> then I guess if, if you were to do a Google search and you could, you could have child pornography in your search term, but you'd also have to have like police arrests, uh, that kind of thing. I'm not so a this, pervert. This, this this way it becomes very clear of what you're looking for and that you're not actually looking for just to, to see it. You're looking for the investigative you know, yeah. investigative materials. But yeah, that's that's a dangerous subject. Yeah, once my wife and I have kids, I don't think I ever want to read this comic again. And, you know, when you talk about like things that are disturbing, that is one of the things is when, when I see things with children and because I am a dad and I have two kids, it does hit that much closer to home. Uh, and, and, you know, my wife is, you know, she, she's just, uh, adamant on it. If there's anything where, you know, any TV series where there's any kind of cruelty to children, she'll refuse to watch it ever again. And, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of, I'm not as hardcore on it as she is, but I do agree with that attitude because again, that's the kind of stuff that you just, you know, it stays with you and you find it disturbing when you, when it's done. And I don't like that. But that's all I got. Since we're done with the three books, I just wanted to touch something really quick, uh, if that's okay with you. Uh, last time when we were talking, Scott, we were talking about the Fantasticast, yeah. which is Andy Leyland's show going over uh, the, the old Fantastic Four issues. Mm -hmm. And after we were done, I felt really bad because we talked about Andy Leyland and all of that. And we mentioned his partner and we just said, yeah, there's another guy. And the guy's name is Steve Lacey, and he does a really nice job, too, and I feel like we really sold him short. And it actually bothered me since that conversation that, that we didn't give him props. 
You are you are absolutely right. I should have remembered that myself because I think we've mentioned. Uh, Steve does. Uh, what's the show that he does? Is it Twenty Minute, minute long, box? long Box? Yeah, yeah. Great show. Uh, yeah, I've wonderful heard, show. Heard so is the Fantastic like Cast. Yeah, I, I really enjoy listening to it. We mentioned it last time, and again, I couldn't remember Steve's name, and I felt bad afterwards. And the only other thing that it was, that hit me afterwards is we talked about uh, you know, that I had gone to the Mike Carbo comic show, and we talked about some of the things I did there, and I forgot to mention to you that uh, I did finally get a chance to have a face-to-face meeting with our mutual friend, uh, Tom DJ. Oh, awesome. Cool. Oh, awesome. Yeah, he, Tom, Tom does not like going to comic conventions very much, but he made an exception for this one. I, I think uh, he's not fond of the big crowds and all of that. No, he's not. It's, but it's, he, it's he, a, made, he made an exception for this one, and uh, I, I went with my son, and that morning, just before we left, I noticed that he put a posting up on Facebook that he was going to be there, so I looked for him, and I found him, and we had a nice little conversation, talked, uh, talked some comics, talked about, uh, about his show, and uh, we talked a little, bit, a little bit of football, which was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, you, want, you, you, you want to talk football, Tom's the guy to go to, because that man loves football. And uh, Tom and I are both Jet fans. So yeah, I was about to say, are you a Jets fan or a Giants fan? It's uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, Tom Tom refused to watch the Super Bowl because the Giants were in it. So well, he had a, a very fan. specific reason for that too, because he works at a sporting goods store mm-hmm. as his day job, and he didn't want to deal with the Giants fans afterwards. Well, that that is the bane of uh, the sports fan who's team doesn't win but rival does and as a Mets fan seeing the Yankees win all these super uh, all these World Series it just comes to haunt me all the time you almost said Super Bowl I was like is Scott talking about sports now because that's <laughs> not something would say yeah and, and I, I am I'm actually a pretty big sports fan so that would have been a huge faux pas on my part see I hear but you I guys talking but all I hear is sports baseball Suddenly, we're the the adults in the peanuts. Cartoons. Yep, exactly. That That's precisely <laughs> it. It's all I'm, just background noise now. I'm very jealous that you got to meet Thomas DJ because he and I have become very good friends over the last couple of years. And to hear that he went out into a to a show like that is is it, it, it's good to hear because he he you're right he doesn't like crowds at all. And that's not me talking smack because he's very open about that on his uh, show Better in the Dark. Uh, it's funny when when I went to the New York Comic Con, which is a much much more crowded show. Uh, last year, I sent Tom a message just saying, "Hey, I'm going to the show. Any chance you're going to be there?" And his response was a simple "No," <laughs> no explanation, <laughs> just "No." But then we started going back and forth, and he says, "Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't like dealing with the crowds." Which, to be honest with you, the New York Comic Con crowd, I can understand that feeling. It's kind of like Dragon Con this year. Dragon Con, I'm going to dress like freaking Ricondo. From uh, G.I. Joe, not because I want to cosplay, but because he's got a giant machete and I can cut through the crowd. (laughs) (laughs) So. Are we really going to end on the Rakondo joke? (laughs) (laughs) I I pretty much emptied my my bag of tricks. I got nothing left. I'm I'm wondering, do we want to throw out a tease for what we're working on or do we want to leave it a mystery? I think the, the the fun part of this show is the mystery element. All um, right, you know they, they they never know what they're gonna get, and which makes for searching for past episodes very complicated. Yes, it does. <laughs> yes, it does. 
Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsen.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. 